0: So welcome to another edition from Lockdown in Victoria. We're talking today about hacking, and I'm joined by Dr. Ian Storey, Lecturer in Information Systems at Melbourne's RMIT. Going back to your notes, Ian, I think we're up to approximately backdoors and trapdoors. Can you explain them?
1: Maybe I could start by talking about rootkits. They're treated as folklore by hackers, because in the old days, the Unix servers, uh, I have to say, too, a lot of servers run Unix because it's it's f- a free system. Even though most people are using either Windows or Macs, the servers, a lot of them are running Unix. Mm-hmm. And so root access was like administrator access on a Unix machine. So even though the machine is shared by a lot of different people, if you have root access, you can change other people's privileges and you can read their data, and you can read the, the administration data. So you can grab things like password files. Even though password files are encrypted, um, you can take them away and then run what are called rainbow tables, all sorts of weird things on them. So the idea is once you've got administrator access or root access, you can load anything you like on the computer, because you have total control. You have more control than any of the users who don't have root access you know any of the valid users mm-hmm. and um oh they're, they're incredibly incredibly dangerous they're so dangerous that really if you've got one then you've pretty much got to wipe the entire disk clean and start again
0: right so it's, it's sort so, of like master master permission it's like the ultimate permission
1: it's like the ultimate permission Yeah. So it's like the ultimate the ultimate backdoor. But backdoors and trapdoors are not necessarily as powerful as that. So you can get into a program. I used to program in ways of getting into programs that I would develop so that I could go in and find and and track errors, you know. Not necessarily see data for the client, but to, to track errors in the system. So various system variables would be useful to see, but it's like it's like those Easter eggs, you know, where you can click on this and you can click on that and you can click on this, and then up opens a, a diagnostic screen. So that would be a backdoor. A trapdoor would be maybe just a password that that lets you in, so that you could gain administrative rights to to a piece of code or or a machine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So these these are really, really bad. Another thing kind of related to this, I guess, is a time bomb. There are examples of people who've done this where they set off a piece of code to go and delete a whole set of files on a, on a hard drive at a particular time. So if someone's been sacked, they put a time bomb on the machine and then a couple of months later, you know, um, all the files are deleted.
0: Great. Uh,
1: <laughs> um yeah, so there's logic bombs that go off in under certain conditions. You know, someone's looking at my files, so I'll delete all their files, all that sort of stuff. Right.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. They're actually pretty easy to set up. Um yeah.
0: <laughs> Right. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, this is one of the reasons why when people get fired these days, it's like, uh, you, you know, there's not much warning, we'll clear out your office for you, you know, don't worry about it, and you, and you can't use your computer anymore, and all your passwords yeah. have been changed.
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And unfortunately, people have to do that. One of my classes is about how to do that, and I always feel guilty teaching
0: it. Really? How, how to fire people securely? <laughs>
1: Well, I guess so. I don't phrase it like that, that uh, (laughs) appears.
0: So how do you take me through that? I mean, this is part of the conversation about hacking. I mean, how do you you fire someone securely, (laughs) Ian?
1: You ask them to clean out their desk of anything that they have that belongs to them, you know, five o'clock on Friday afternoon. You get a security guard and you walk them down you ask for their identifiers, you know their cards or whatever. Mm. I think I avoid teaching it when I have the opportunity actually. Mm. <laughs> because mm. it's not a nice process at all.
0: No manager likes firing anyone. You know, let's face it, it's it's not a not a comfortable thing to do. But sometimes it has to happen and sometimes you might have very you know very valid reasons for doing it and sort of doing it in a way that that doesn't cost you too dearly. There is always the possibility of revenge or bad blood
1: yeah well believe it or not that does happen in organizations where um, people uh, become you know they have vengeful thoughts about other people in the organization or about what the organization owes them um, mm. and uh, and in some cases um, even they are mistreated mm. um, it goes both ways sure yeah so it's, it's important to deal with those kind of things mm. But, yeah, it's never nice. One kind of attack that I think is a little bit outside of hacking, I guess it is hacking, is called the the man-in-the-middle attack. Yep. This is pretty hard to set up in the labs. It's kind of like that, you know, that Qantas webpage example that you had, Mm. where someone identifies themselves with a man-in-the-middle, quote-unquote, and they're not really the other party. So an example of this is one of my um, teachers actually worked for Ericsson and they did work for the French police force. And they were able to set up man-in-the-middle attacks on cell phones. Right. Because cell cell phones connect to the nearest tower. So they use the strength of the towers that they're talking to to gauge which tower they're going to be talking to. So as you're moving through a city, you'll be talking to lots of different towers. It's an amazing system. They would drive a black truck, <laughs> one of those black vans, mm. near to where the hacker was in the park or whatever, where the target was in the park, and the target would talk to the black van rather than talking to the nearest tower. Ah. And then they would pass on everything that the target was saying. So to the target, it looked as if they were talking to the other end securely using the the security of the phone. But what's compromised there, everything works correctly as far as the target is concerned. They they hang up and everything has happened properly. But what has happened, of course, is that everything has been listened in on. And this is an important attack to explain to students because it's an attack that can be done on, on the public key system. So how do we know that we're getting Amazon's public key when we, when we go into Amazon and we sign in? How do we know that we're getting their public key? This is a huge headache for the public key system. And it, it means that we need an entire infrastructure to handle it. And you may have heard of PKI.
0: Hmm.
1: No, people, people don't say it as much as they used to. PKI is Public Key Infrastructure, mm-hmm. infrastructure. So co- public key infrastructure is what allows this system to hang together, where when you get Amazon's keys, they're actually the, the, the uh, encryption keys for Amazon. Yep. It relies on having like central authorities. A number of central authorities actually certificate authorities they're called it's a pretty complex infrastructure that's developed just so that when you actually buy something from Amazon you're not giving your money to somebody else who then passes on the transactions so that man in the middle attack is something that's important to think about because it It explains why we need public key infrastructure.
0: It's amazing how critical these sort of things are, and we take them for granted. And most people, and this is the reason why I guess hacking is so much of a problem, is because most people, you know, they're just not aware of this level of detail and they can't be, I mean, and particularly older people because they haven't grown up with computers and they're not sort of tech savvy and they don't get, it's, it's hard to explain or even get them to use second factor authentication, say for their banking. And so they wind up quite vulnerable. You know, and 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 getting them to make sure their software on their browser is updated, so that when they do internet banking, that's secure. Or, or teaching them how to use an app. Younger people or people who've either talked about it, you know, through it through a general science and tech show, which which I've done, and and the guy that I do the show with, John Young, is is pretty savvy with this sort of stuff. So I've picked up quite a bit from him. But most people just aren't aware of this stuff, Ian. They just well, don't. I
1: think even like I said, even amongst security people, they get lazy. Well, not lazy, but and they think, "Oh, if I'm going to get hacked, I'm going to get hacked." Mm. And they get complacent is the word. yeah, and younger people as well. And when you're working for a boss and you're stressed out and you you know you've got timelines and things, you just don't think about phishing attacks no. or um, social engineering or the the problems with phishing attacks. These very basic rules have to be reinforced again and again and again. And also, in some organizations, there are people who've never used these rules. Yep. So there's different techniques for training people, making people aware of these things. And mostly they're stressing each time the same thing. Don't respond to phishing attacks. Use good, strong passwords. Mm. Pretty much that's it. Second yeah. factor. You're lucky if you can get that in. <laughs> yeah. Second factor is really good. And some people have been saying to me, oh, that, that guy doesn't know much. He just told me what I already knew but you got to you got to raise awareness over those issues again and again and again because yeah. that's where the that's where the attacks come in the the data is showing phishing attacks are really effective
0: Will companies fire people for breaches of this kind of security? Because the employee sort of says, Well look, I'm busy doing my job, which is not related to security. The security is a, an important side issue which the company has, which the business has, and the shareholders, the investors, the, the sort of security of the of the business overall. But what I'm doing is is taking up my time and my attention. Can companies say to people, if you breach these security guidelines, which we're, you know, we're gonna pay a consultant to come in and teach you, or we're going to teach you, we're going to train you. Well, I mean, that's interesting because I work for a
1: university and the university's lecturers want to look at all kinds of material. You know, there are lecturers who talk about the effects of pornography even, right? And so it's really, really difficult to police that kind of thing. So what they have is awareness training. So every now and then you have to go in and and make yourself aware of various issues around information security but they also have a system of pages that look attractive with links on them and if you click on those links they'll then take you to a page where you learn about phishing attacks right um, which is a you know a, a nice gentle way of letting you know that you should be careful about phishing attacks and and training people mm. so mm. i would opt more for the training end of things but It would depend on how vital the information is. Yep. So if if someone has agreed that they will follow these procedures and it's been very clearly pointed out to them, you know, if they're working for banks or for the military Mm. and they're responsible for sensitive information or people's personal details, then yes, I think they probably could be sacked. I don't have any hard data on that, actually.
0: The head of ASIO in Australia, Mike Burgess, said recently that spies are actually having to go back to the old ways because there's so much hard to stop cybercrime. In other words, sending sensitive information over networks, you know, even super secure ones and the best technology, the best encryption, the best advice. Is proving so difficult now because of the expertise of hackers that they're actually going back to to old spycraft you know dead letter drops and analog systems of doing things because they're actually more secure wow it's got it's got to that level interestingly one of the reasons Burgess,
1: burgess is saying that wow
0: yeah and and one of the reasons that russia is so good at hacking is apparently they have a very big emphasis in their education system towards teaching uh, information technology and, and computer science. Their universities and and colleges over there rank very, very high in comparison with the rest of the world in terms of turning out the best graduates and, and, and sort of having the highest score relative to other countries around the world. And then those people either get hired directly by security services or they wind up as freelance hackers who are tolerated, you know, blind eyes turn to them as long as they share their useful tidbits with the government.
1: I can see that. Kevin Mitnick, who I talked about earlier, who's a very famous hacker, now earns money by talking about information security. Yep. And there is a bit of a feeling out there that if you've displayed good hacking techniques, someone is likely to want to employ you in information security. Mm. I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I think people want people they can trust to work for them and if you if you've hacked one organization you can hack them as well yeah so they're not they're not it's it's not really true it's no longer true and I think that would apply also in places like Russia and China I do think it might apply for very elite hacking techniques that nobody else knows about for people who are able to do those kind of at- attacking techniques Mm. I mean, once, you, once you're into a computer and you can write any program you want, and they, they, they download in, a, you know, in a, a fraction of a second, you can get a program to do anything you like on any protocol you like. So hackers who can write those sort of code are probably valued by criminals, by people who are doing industrial espionage, and by nations involved in in cyber war but i think in general i really doubt that if someone's a good hacker that they employ people like that because they're not really safe to work yeah yeah
0: i mean i take your point it's it's a sort of it's a character issue it's it's a it's a trust issue if they've they've, it's like hiring a, a bank robber to to guard your bank the implication is that, as you mentioned, that, that that it's the very elite. And maybe this is a bit Hollywood, but if you can sort of prove yourself to be a really exceptional hacker who can... Wasn't there a competition years ago the Bank of England said to the crims, if you can break into the Bank of England and, and rob us, we'll give you a reward. <laughs> and there's been examples of, of um, bounties offered to to break certain security. You know, like, you know, if you can break iOS or if you can break into certain uh, very advanced encrypted communication there's a reward for you and you've got to share how you did it but companies that are legitimate companies are so concerned about security that they'll actually pay a bounty to be shown the vulnerability
1: i think apple does do that yeah um and various organizations do do that right and it's and i think it's clever for them to do that but they won't necessarily employ those people they will reward them for telling them about the hack that, that that is possible but they won't necessarily re- reward them with a job
0: continuing yep. access yeah 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 makes sense you're listening to beyond infinity infinity
1: remember to visit our program website beyondinfinity.com.au where you'll find our complete back catalog of over 600 podcasts that's beyondinfinity.com.au just a couple of things left that I want to talk about. One is war driving. There was an old, old, old movie called War Game mm-hmm. starring Matthew Broderick. It's a real classic and all the information security guys talk about it. So he almost started World War III by by playing war games with a computer that was being held by, you know, some agency, let's say the CIA. The way he did that was by just dialing a whole lot of numbers and seeing if, if the computer was awake at the, the end of that number. Well, do you remember a couple of years ago when you could get into your neighbor's Wi-Fi? Not that I ever did, but a lot of people, when they first got Wi-Fi, didn't secure it with passwords. Right. For a long time as well, the Wi-Fi protocol, the protocol was developed in Australia, by the way. The yes. technology was developed in Australia. Beautiful. Yep. But it was still having teething problems. And so you could set up a laptop, drive around the neighborhood, connect to a Wi Fi outlet, and just hack into the password. Mm-hmm. And we get our students to do this. The newer Wi Fi protocols are pretty well immune to it. But in those days, you could hack into it. And there's still a lot of Wi Fi routers around that are running those older protocols. Right. So, you know that's an interesting thing
0: just on wi-fi with your uh, nbn modems so a lot of people have got new modems now because or fairly new in the last whatever 18 months two years that they've they've rolled out the nbn to their area if you're with telstra they give you a fridge magnet with your password on it now of course you can change that password but i reckon 99 percent of people don't bother you know so you're getting a password that's that's been issued i don't know like by a company that that has a record of it,
1: and not only that, someone comes around to visit you.
0: Mm. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <and> see,
1: <laughs> sees your fridge magnet.
0: <laughs> yes, can you access computers or devices that are connected to Wi-Fi just by having access to the Wi-Fi password? Is that does it get you into the computers that are using that network, or is it just it's just letting you use that service provider for internet access?
1: It can get you into. Their service provider, and then you can use up their their data. Right? Okay, that's one okay. thing. Yes, but it depends how how open they are. Some people have movies connected to their to their router, hard drives full of movies connected to their router. Um, yeah. So you could plant something on the hard drive. There's also techniques for hacking into routers as well, and this is something I. I always knew about, but one of my friends at work told me it's probably a good idea to turn your router off and on every every week or so. Right. One of one of my friends has an automatic way of turning theirs off and on every night because you can actually hack into the router software. And, you know, hackers can add code, add Trojans to the router software. Right. It all depends how, how sophisticated they are, but they can... If you're open to it, they can get in and actually use your devices.
0: You know Wi Fi can also be used to locate you in your house, the Wi Fi signal. So you don't even have to have a device, you don't even have to have a phone in your pocket. Just the Wi Fi signal going out, emanating from wherever it's like lo- wherever the modem's located in your house can actually locate you in that house.
1: No, you'd have to have the phone in your pocket. No, I don't think
0: right? so. No, I don't think so. I think it's to do with it's the waves that are going out can actually be read.
1: Oh, moving, yeah, okay. To pick up a moving
0: Yeah, to pick up a moving object.
1: Okay. I didn't know that. I do know there's a new Wi Fi protocol that they're talking about, mm. which will allow a lot more connectivity. So, what's been happening wi-fi channels there's only really a few of them that can operate all at one time most of the time when you're loading a web page your wi-fi is doing nothing it's only when the loading occurs and then when you click the button to go to the next page okay so there's not really a lot of traffic when i run a test for example in my labs i've got maybe 30 students doing the test all at once But the routers can only handle about five connections all at once. So how does that happen? Well, it happens because when they're on a page running the test, they're not actually connected to the router. It's only when they hit next or save or whatever that the router is. But more and more, as people live in denser high rise buildings and there's many more devices that are running Wi-Fi, there's collisions happening all the time between these different channels. Yeah. So Wi-Fi 6 is adding a new frequency. It's a lot less susceptible to crosstalk from one channel affecting another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that's something exciting to look forward to.
0: And I'm always amazed that you know, the number of devices that are, that are watching streaming video, Netflix or other, all at once on the one modem, and with yeah. with just a pretty ordinary nbn i mean as everyone knows nbn's not that fast most people are only getting about 20 meg or something down mm-hmm. and yet somehow that they cope they're able to buffer and deal with with three or four or you know multiple devices all streaming videos so instead of it just being a you know a click on reloading this page or submit this or whatever which is just sort of a little moment by moment thing with pauses in between streaming is pretty constant and and yet it, it somehow is, it
1: is actually yeah you're right it's really amazing mm. not the encryption the compression algorithms you yes know, allow you to allow you to get pretty decent audio really good audio and pretty decent video Mm. Um, through a a Wi-Fi connection and people you know bunches of people doing it all at once it is amazing it's really Mm. amazing Mm. and as people though move towards 5k and 8k (laughs) it's going to become more challenging you know uh, 5k video 8k video just to sort of wrap things up a little bit Mm. one thing I tell my students is that a virus is actually the particular kind of malware so the Malware covers uh, viruses, worms, Trojans. It also covers in some cases scareware, but everybody now calls them viruses. But a virus is something that doesn't have its own reproduction. You know, it's like a virus and a bacteria. A virus just has the DNA. Bacteria has all the mechanisms for making another cell from the DNA. So a virus is something that triggers another program. Right. And so the term isn't often used technically correctly. But I tell my students not to be too smart because everybody uses the term virus to cover all malware. Right. okay. Um, You you don't want to make a nuisance of yourself. But but um, the term is is uh, is technically not used correctly.
0: The main Use of that word is is just to imply the ability for, for to to spread easily, correct?
1: Yeah, to spread easily, but also to use some other program in order to do it. Right. Where whereas a Trojan or a worm, it's its own program and it can it can actually do its own spreading. Okay. Not not relying on another piece of code.
0: Virus is then more likely to exploit an existing vulnerability.
1: Yes. Yeah. But that's that's only the technical term. I mean, um, I think eventually one day a virus will mean malware, and we'll forget the term malware. Mm-hmm. A trojan is an interesting thing. That's a program that looks like it's doing something else. So you got a calculator, um, free on the web, and it's actually full of viruses, full of malware. Okay, they reckon that there's quite a few security software, you know, anti antivirus software, which are themselves viruses. Great. Free antivirus software is not necessarily great. I don't know if I've talked about it before on with you, but um, there's a disc that looks like a CD, mm. but it's a different colour. It's almost like stone. It's called an M-disc. And most media are only guaranteed for five years. I'm, I'm talking about USBs as well, SSDs hard drives, CDs, DVDs, tape. They're only guaranteed for five years. Right. But M-Disc is guaranteed for 200 years. Right. Okay. So it's a really good backup mechanism. You have to have the right drive. I I bought one. It's fairly cheap. And you have to have the right discs. They take forever to record. But Mm. when they do, you've got that data... You know, you've got that peace of mind that you've got data for 200 years. I was uh, suggesting this to my business students, and they were saying, no, it's a good idea for data to disappear after five years because then the tax guys can't
0: get you. <laughs> <laughs> but then but then, isn't, isn't it illegal you've got to hold your data for seven years, haven't you? Oh, All for that. seven years.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, accidentally my data was dis- Corrupted. <laughs> that so wasn't it's... me saying that. If anyone is listening to this,
0: that wasn't <laughs> yeah. me saying that. That well, was ho- my student. Well, we're hoping in, that there's... in jest, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, there will be. I'm hoping that there will be some people listening to this, apart from us. But Ian, we're digressing a bit. But I mean, I, I think that's an interesting one. Just on, da- you know, we're talking hacking and data security is is linked to that. And I've got you know all these sort of uh, like like photo album folders with with um, burnt discs in them. You know, DVDs that were burnt. Uh, or data disks you know remember when you had 700 and then you had 4.5 gig data disks and that was how I backed up heaps of photos and all sorts of stuff is backed up on them and then also those external drives you know made by Western Digital or made by who you know them in their dime a dozen you can you know they're they're cheap and they're the thought that they're gonna only last for five years so you've got a room or a shelf full of these things and you've just dumped all your data there uh, only
1: guaranteed to last for five years
0: yeah so i guess it's an argument for for using cloud services
1: yeah i've known people who've lost data in cloud services but they are much more reliable these days mm. on the on the topic of external hard drives it's a good idea to this is why MDIS are good because you you know you take it out but if you leave an external hard drive attacked and you get a um you get a an attack where they're corrupting your data you know where they're encrypting it a mm. ransomware attack where they're yep. Yep. going through all your files, you can still get that data being lost because it's still connected to your computer. So you're supposed to disconnect those and then only connect when you're backing up. Absolutely. One last kind of attack is called Eck freaking. And it's amazing because it doesn't need any kind of attachment to your computer. It's not that it reads Wi-Fi or any, any signal you know deliberate signal coming out of your computer it just reads the the signals between your computer and and your screen wow and and it's able to to detect the signal that's coming between your your computer and the screen and build up a picture of what's on your screen and it's claimed bruce Snyyer claims that it's possible to do this from a kilometer away
0: so that's amazing can you clarify when you're talking about between your computer and your screen so you've got a cable like often an HDMI cable that, that connects your computer to your screen or say an, ex- yeah. an external monitor on an HDMI cable so there's some kind of wave there's something being released which is readable along that yeah, cable it's,
1: it's like an antenna releasing data out into the real oh, world right and they're reading the the signal coming off that antenna. And the only way to beat it is to have a Faraday cage, which is a, a wire mesh around either your room or your computer.
0: Okay. Do you have a Faraday cage around your room where you're sitting now, here? <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a movie, Enemy of the State. Yeah.
1: In that movie, he has a he has chicken wire all around his computer setup, for that very reason to okay. act as a Faraday cage. Will Smith says, jeez, I'd love to see the chicken that lives in this coop.
0: <laughs> years ago, at, and this is going back to the 80s, the late 80s, when I was at uni, I did a subject with some, some police and they told me that they had technology. This is, so this is, what, 30, 35 years ago. The police had technology where they could, they could fire a laser at a window of a house and the vibrations that your voice make in the glass so you, you're you inside the house you're in a room inside the house and there's a window next to you someone can sit outside fire a laser at the glass and the minute vibrations like microscopic not visible but there are vibrations they can be picked up by the laser and that can allow them to listen to what's being said yeah. inside so
1: you, your window acts like a microphone yeah yeah Mm. Absolutely, yeah. It's a really interesting technique.
0: Mm, and it's been around for ages. So thank you very much to Dr. Ian Storey, lecturer in information systems at RMIT. It's been a great chat about hacking and all the different forms of it and, and old versions and, and data security and some of the newer techniques that are being used. So I really appreciate your time today, Ian, and uh, let's do it again soon. And always a pleasure to talk with you and, and to get your expertise on what is really a fascinating and, and very broad subject. So so much appreciated, Ian.
1: Oh, thanks very much, Piers. It is a pleasure. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to review us on iTunes. It's a great way to let others know if you've liked our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media,
0: Beyond Infinity RPPFM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter.